Hello, my name is Rodney Dietert. I'm Professor Emeritus at Cornell University and have worked for 41 years on various aspects of protecting the developing immune system and more recently on the microbiome, both humans and animals. And I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve about microbiome science is that while there is more that we're going to learn than we know now, that a lot of people think that because we don't know at all, we shouldn't necessarily start to apply it or do anything. And I think there's a middle ground where, in fact, you know enough to do some things that are very useful for soil, plant, animal, and human health. And it's high time to start because we know that ignoring the microbiome when it comes to both preventative medicine and therapeutics is a huge mistake. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back, my fellow microbial transport vesicles, you. This is Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist and big mouth, ready and raring to talk to you about the microbiome. Before we introduce our guests and feature conversation, I just want to remind you to rate us if you can, leave a review and share us far and wide. My goal for 2020 is to break the top 100 in our category, and I think we can do that without a problem as long as you keep supporting us as you have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Rodney Dietert is a professor emeritus at Cornell University, and he's earned it too, spending 41 years at the institution, educating on and researching microbiology and immunology. His research focuses on the protection of the immune system during early life, and more recently, the role of the microbiome in human health. Good guy to talk to for us, right? So he has more than 300 scientific publications, in case you didn't know it. He's written Strategies for Protecting Your Child's Immune System, and more recently, The Human Superorganism, How the Microbiome is Revolutionizing the Pursuit of a Healthy Life. He's the real deal, and we're going to focus on the human microbiome today, defining it and giving you a glimpse to where the research has uncovered some amazing truths while leading us to a brighter future, which is kind of rare anymore, right? So enjoy. All right, so there's a lot that I would like to talk about with the microbiome. I'm sure we're going to have you on a million times because there's a lot that interests people around the microbiome. So I guess let's just start at the beginning. What should people know about the microbiome that, uh, you know, beyond the stuff that's in like the common media and, and perception, like what else should we know about the microbiome? Well, it's more than just bacteria. Uh, virus, archaea, fungi as well. And, and it's more than just the gut. Uh, we know more about the gut microbiome than we do some other body sites, but the others are catching up very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And it's more than just humans. It's really uh, a planet. I mean, microbes are the predominant life form on earth. Right. So we're a microbial planet and every complex organism, uh, plant, animal, humans, um, are superorganisms. They, they are composed of, uh, in general, um, more microbial genes than their other genes. Mm -hmm. And um, so we are all participants with the microbial planet in uh, our shared experiences. And the more that we learn to 
uh, I believe, to manage microbes and do so in a useful way, the more we can ensure that uh, soil, plant, animal, and human health is optimized. So it, it means a different thinking. We're not what I, at least what I was taught in biology class uh, and, and other classes yeah. that humans really are. We're something quite different. We're more analogous to a to a coral reef, and, um, and we've had a lot of experience managing tropical rainforests and coral reefs. I've met people with a personality of a coral reef, so I, I think that's a pretty accurate statement. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so you know, we have the benefit that we're we're mobile. So, I kind of consider us the the Johnny Appleseed of uh, microbial distribution. We uh, accumulate them and drop them as we go. Whether it's uh, I just recently had a speaking gig at a conference in New Mexico, and yeah. so a hotel room I went into, I got to experience the prior occupants. My microbes and probably left a few of my own. And uh, so as we move around, we disperse them. And if we have pets, they help us disperse them as well. Isn't it way grosser than like, it's, it's probably better that we don't think about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it, it, it's going to happen whether we think about it or not. <laughs> right. But I think that uh, realizing that managing that mm -hmm. is important that uh, we don't, you know, if the 20th century was all about uh, microbes are bad and kill them all, then uh, this is a very different ballgame yeah. we're experiencing now that we understand that over 99% of our genes are microbial. So, you know, you want to change your genetic makeup, you don't like what you've got, you pro we probably can arrange that <laughs> uh, a little bit easier than modifying the chromosomal genes. Um, so, although that's happening through CRISPR, Mm -hmm. And CRISPR is a yeah bacterial bacterial system mm -hmm. as well. So the, the bacteria are exquisite at uh, sharing and modifying genes, and we we should use that to our benefit. There's a, a bit of misinformation that I always like to address first and foremost. That a lot of people think that we are ten times the amount of bacterial cells than we are, or like microbial cells than we are human cells. Is that an accurate number? Because I'm hearing that it's not, and we we all parrot it back and forth. Yeah, no, it, it that was uh, thought to be the case about uh, three, four years ago, mm -hmm. and then some other studies showed that it's more like fifty, around fifty-seven percent, uh, uh, literally depending on time of day and your status. Right. Uh, so you can consider it either either about even or just a slight majority for the right. microbes. Um, that's by cell number. So mm -hmm. again, by genes, it's still about. 3.3 million microbial genes in each of us compared to 22 to 25,000 chromosomal genes. So oh. more than 99%. And those genes are all metabolizing and making signal molecules. And, um, and I'll, I'll talk about location, why location matters, mm -hmm. just like in real estate, it does in our <laughs> body. And business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the cells are, cells are about even. Mm -hmm. uh, but the genes are uh, mainly microbial, and that that is where we need to be aware of that and take advantage of it. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing that everybody needs to understand is the genes are expressing the proteins and all of the stuff that ends up in the tubes and in the blood and you know everywhere, right? That's what ends up in our body. So the status of your microbiome can have a huge influence on everything. We had somebody on who talked about the gut and mind connection, right? And those two things. Yeah. So so let's talk exactly. about let's talk about the location. Um, what should people know about the location of their microbiome and how all of them have different roles and such? 
Right. Well, location is is revealing in this case, because I can say that, uh, you know, in, in my academic career, I got to direct the Toxicology Institute at Cornell and mm -hmm. was teaching the in infectious diseases component in the veterinary college second year uh, immuno immunology and infectious diseases and microbiology. Mm -hmm. And so when when those scientists look at the body, you know, if we were talking about environmental health and exposures, you'd talk about routes of exposure, mm -hmm. which is inhalation, you know, through as you breathe, oral through your mouth, you know, a liquid, solid food, uh, and dermal, and to some extent, you're a genital, you know, so it's mm -hmm. all where you're open to the environment that you have exposure to uh, drugs, chemicals, food, food additives. And uh, from a safety toxicological standpoint, those are critical sites. Well, infectious disease people talk about routes, uh, uh, portals of entry, I should say, portals of entry. And where are they? Well, the airways, you breathe in influenza virus, yep. right? You you have uh, exposure to uh, E. coli or salmonella, you know, contaminant uh, orally, mm -hmm. uh, or you have a break in the skin and bacteria get in. Uh, or again, your genital uh, exposures as well um, as a, a transmission route for infectious agents. So those are coincide because the microbiome is located where we connect with the external environment. So it is in our airways. It's in our gut, which is actually a tube that is outside of us that runs through us, you might say. That's my favorite thing to teach people is that it's a tube. It's a subway. It's on the outside, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, the microbiome's on our skin and, and the urogenital tract, and there are some other interesting sites like breast breast tissue has a microbiome that is distinct from breast milk, human milk. Mm -hmm. So uh, these sites are where you first encounter the environment, mm -hmm. and if ninety nine percent of your genes are located there and are going to be metabolizing uh, the chemicals that are encountered, whether it's food whether it's a oral medication, for example, a drug, or whether it's something like arsenic in drinking water, um, your risk and what happens in terms of your cells, your human mammalian cells, seeing the result of that exposure are completely dependent on your microbiome status, mm -hmm. the mix of your microbes. Mm -hmm. So literally, you can't say much of anything about safety risk benefit from food you ingest, uh, contaminants, um, drugs, unless you know the microbiome status and you know what happens to those chemicals uh, as the microbes handle them. So from a safety standpoint, I mean, uh, Ellen Silvergeld uh, in School of Public Health in Johns Hopkins uh, and I published a paper in a toxicological journal arguing that we have to redo safety, uh, how we model human safety, right. uh, which goes back to the National Academies and the National Research Council. And she was actually on the 1987 panel that described how you get from an exposure event to pathology and clinical disease, body burden pathology and clinical disease. And it's a model that's used by the FDA and the EPA and the World Health Organization and the like. But the problem is, obviously, in 1987, it didn't include the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And so we, we published a very simple figure change where we <laughs> inserted the microbiome front and center, first thing that, that gets, encounters anything, mm -hmm. and said, okay, this, here's why this needs to be the new model. And we actually got very little pushback from toxicologists and the like, because it's simply the new, it's the new biology. It's the new, what we understand about 
humans now and their composition. So uh, it's this is a filter. We need to think about it as, as seeing the world, seeing the exter all external to our body and probably communicating <laughs> with what's external to, uh, to our body through the microbes. And uh, as a result, it means that some, some drugs on the market today, even some over-the-counter drugs like NSAIDs, mm -hmm. are not as safe as we thought. They can damage the microbiome. Other drugs, you could reduce adverse side effects if only the microbiome were being taken to account when prescriptions happen. And cancer therapeutics would be among these. Mm -hmm. We could dramatically increase the success rate of those drugs by installing the microbes needed to metabolize those to the active compound. One of the things that we just discussed with someone, uh, she was a cancer, she's a cancer hope coach and she is a stage four survivor and she was undergoing immunotherapy down at um, Columbia and she was notably um, exceptionally uh, performing well with her therapies because of the support that she gave her body, which had to do with her microbiome. She was taking strong probiotics. She was eating correctly. She was exercising. Mm -hmm. She was doing everything. So I'm sure that, you know, she is one of those case studies where the, the therapies are more effective when you're healthier to begin with. Exactly. And diet helps drive microbiome composition. You know, in the end, it's, it's going to be ener the energy put in and the microbes that can use it that that, that particular energy source that, that count a, a great deal. So matching diet and the microbiome uh, is, is really useful. Mm -hmm. And exercise is one of the things that supports a healthy microbiome mm -hmm. as long as it's voluntary. There's an interesting study where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rats and mice, they allow them to exercise on a wheel. Mm -hmm. And as long as they're allowed to do it when they want to, their microbiome stays very healthy. If you force them mm -hmm. to exercise when they don't want to, it degrades the microbiome. Is that a stress response? It's a stress response. Mm -hmm. And it, it simply shows that uh, stress can take many different forms, but that is a good way to damage your microbiome. Does your mother-in-law have any influence on your microbiome? <laughs> well, I, I mean, considering that it's been called a second endocrine organ and the, <laughs> the gut's been called a second brain. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> They both produce and they regulate neurochemicals. Mm -hmm. uh, most of your neurochemicals are made in the gut, not mm -hmm. the brain. Yeah. Two-thirds of your immune system is sitting in the gut, and your hormone status is affected by and regulated by the microbiome status as well. So, yes, you can uh, be buffered against stress or you can be more vulnerable. You know, your, your resiliency in part it can be enhanced through the microbiome. So can we talk about that idea? Because this is a hard concept for a lot of people to uh, kind of put together, the idea of the connection between the bacteria that are lining your gut and the neurochemicals that are being secreted in your central nervous system. So can you kind of connect those two dots for people? Right. I think there are three different pathways. The only one I'm remembering at the moment is the vagus nerve, but mm -hmm. uh, John Cryan and Tim Dynan and their group at University College Cork have uh, actually labeled that area of research between the gut microbes and the brain as psychobiotics. Oh. And um, they have shown that there are three different, at least three different routes where those neurochemicals get transmitted. Uh, to the brain and mm -hmm. the impact of those. And the microbes, the bacteria can make their own neurochemicals, neuropeptides. Mm -hmm. uh, they can also regulate production by the, the rest of the gut mammalian cells. So they exert an extreme control on that. And you have specific bacterial species that'll make serotonin, uh, others that'll make dopamine and mm -hmm. GABA mm -hmm. and ac acetylcholine. So uh, really the, the, the go-to 
for neurological health is adjusting the ratio of those bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, why wouldn't you do that instead of heavy-duty pharmaceuticals that are known to have some uh, potentially serious side effects? Right. Uh, so we have within us the solution if we uh, manage our microbes differently. Right. And along those lines, a lot of people today look for the quick fix. You know, I want to just, what's the magic bullet that will make this problem go away? So they say, I'm going to take a probiotic and then I don't have to use all of those medicines. But what you're not, you're not saying that you're saying that you need to manage your microbiome, which is a multifactorial holistic kind of approach. Um, So let's talk about how do we influence our microbiome at all? Because I've been reading a bunch that we really don't like our microbiome is what it is. And some nutritional things can, can change our gut microbiome, but really it's pretty stagnant. Uh, So can you shine some light on that? Is that BS or what's going on there? Uh, I think it's an overreach in part. I understand where it's coming from. And Mm -hmm. there is, there is evidence that you get some founding species in there and that when you hit, hit adulthood, um, your microbiome uh, is, is uh, harder to shift, uh, or some people would say you really don't shift it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not been my experience. We've tracked, you know, uh, some of the best microbiome analysis data is really when you're doing serial sampling individually. So mm-hmm. uh, that's something my wife and I have pursued. And I can tell you that in my 60s, I turned my health around using a combination of diet and and probiotics. Um, And it's reflected on the microbiome analysis. So I think it can be shifted. If you try to shift it without supporting diet, that's Mm -hmm. a problem. If you try to only use diet and you're, in other words, if you've grown your garden of gut microbes up on fried chicken Mm -hmm. and you want a kale using (laughs) a group of microbes, good luck with that because you have all the neurochemical pain inflicted on you by your fried chicken loving microbes uh, as you try to nudge things toward kale. Right. And you'll be weaker to fight at Popeye's. You will. You will. Well, I I ask people, I say, do you have a, uh, do you have a chocolate craving? Would you like a chocolate craving? That probably can be installed. (laughs) So one of the things to keep in mind is that some people are measuring sort of the microbes that become established in colonies. And it indeed, it may be, it may be difficult to completely reestablish uh, or establish certain microbes that are then measured as being a fixture in your gut. That is not the only benefit you can have. Mm-hmm. Flow through microbes that are metabolizing, if in sufficient quantity, can be very useful. And uh, again, I, I go back to my origins. I was hired at Cornell actually to, to breed, to do genetics and breed naturally healthier chickens. And over the years, 41 years, a long time, I, I wound up working on children's health instead of just chick health. So um, I can tell you that we've got 35 to 40 years of probiotic data where you intensively manage the environment of poultry. Mm-hmm. And you hear about the antibiotic use, uh, the, the hor- horrific antibiotic use for prophylactics for, am- for growth as growth factors. Right. But you probably heard less about saving the industry from salmonella infection using probiotics. And that actually started when I was in the poultry department back in the 80s, mm-hmm. where there was an outbreak in New York State, uh, vertical transmission through the egg, horizontal chicken to chicken, and two humans through food, contaminated eggs and, and food. And they were able, to, people stopped eating poultry and chick- and eggs in particular, it devastated the industry, and at least certainly in New York State. And they were able to, uh, to, to elicit protection in a process known as colonization resistance, where you use 
the friendly uh, mutualistic commensal bacteria to uh, inhibit the growth and opportunity for pathogens, in this mm -hmm. case, salmonella. Mm -hmm. And it works. And it's not an industry that has huge profits. I mean, the people that are the producers have pennies on the, you know, just pennies profit. And yet it was cost effective. And it's continued. And so it's a matter of uh, where you are with your microbiome, how you try to repopulate it. Mm -hmm. And uh, while people say it's hard to shift it, no, no one really argues that fecal microbiota transplants don't shift the microbiome either. They, again, it depends on donor recipient, but people have benefits. And so uh, there can be benefits from probiotics, and particularly when used in concert with diet. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, all probiotics are not the same, and right. you can waste an inordinate amount of money simply buying a probiotic uh, in, in a way that is not sufficiently educated. Right. Uh, so it takes some legwork to figure out what would be useful. And that's where I live. I live in the product space to find out what products mm -hmm. are, what they say they are. And so we're going to do a follow-up podcast that talks about like buying a probiotic and all of this other stuff. So yeah, I mean, people have to understand that it's just because it's labeled probiotic doesn't mean that it actually has living bacteria in it or it's not contaminated or, you know, whatever, all of the different horrible things that can go on. Yeah, or that they'll make it through the acidic compartment that is your stomach. Right, so. right, and colonize at all. So yes. back to the the shifting, and so we know, so you're saying, yes, we can definitely shift, um, you know, especially if the situation's right and you're, and you're putting it in concert. So what are some nutritional things that uh, people could do to best support? So like in your research and your data, what, have, what foods have you found that have the biggest impact? You can say generally, or if you have specific, like, oh, you got to eat this, uh, you know, preferably if you said M&Ms, like that uh, hopefully will set me off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, again, <laughs> keeping in mind that I've never, claimed, I've never claimed that nutrition is my primary of expertise course. area. Of course. And there are a lot of people Oh, uh, a great deal about it. But uh, there's inulin. There are these things called prebiotics, mm -hmm. and they are really the the food that support particular in, in, uh, bacterial growth uh, over others. And uh, so there are a number of prebiotics. Some of them include, uh, you know, you've probably heard about fiber mm -hmm. being useful, and that is, but it's not the only only thing that's useful. And so the the danger is uh, what what my concern is over diets is that there, that there is no one size fits all. Right. So, uh, and it's the same with healthy microbiomes. Mm -hmm. So it turns out, uh, that there are ranges of prebiotics. Again, I mentioned inulin, uh, and different fibers and some complex carbohydrates, mm -hmm. uh, that are very useful, but you know, you can even get beneficial phytochemicals through, Particularly, I, I recently attended a, a regenerative agriculture conference and got to present there mm -hmm. where they were dealing with uh, microbiomes of soil plants and animals, uh, production animals. And you can get some real benefit from phytochemicals and the products that actually come through, come through meats depending on what the diet was of the animal. Right. Uh, so that, that was something that became very clear and that was a, a learning uh, experience for me. So I think that uh, paying attention to your source of food as well as what its composition is, is really useful. And um, so I think people, people can 
support this, you know, and it may be an increase in fiber, but for some people, you get the wrong fiber in the wrong amount and your gut will blow up and you will regret it. So it is something that has to be done gradually. Uh, I know my wife, for my wife and I, our body doesn't like change and it has yeah. to be introduced carefully. Mm -hmm. So just to immediately switch diets is, uh, you, you have some downside as well. Um, and the, the other point is I'd make about there being many healthy microbiomes is that if I look at my ancestry, which is mainly European and African versus Asian, mm -hmm. uh, I would do better trying to nudge my microbiome out of some of its uh, uh, imbalances and deficit issues toward a very healthy, uh, maybe Mediterranean type um, microbiome as opposed to going for the very best Asian microbiome I could get. Mm -hmm. That could be a, a bridge too far for mm -hmm. my body to try, try to do as the first option. Right. So I, I urge people to kind of pay attention. You're immune, and, and uh, one of the topics I love now is talking about the immune microbiome interaction mm -hmm. and how it's almost a sacred interaction because it literally can de determine speciation. Yeah, talk more about that. Well, well, let me first just make the point that that paying attention to what your your ancestors' immune system saw over millennia relative to the microbes in soil, plants, and and it and food may help guide you in terms of what a good interaction would be, uh, including even donor microbiota, because your immune system is going to react to what you throw in there, and it better be a good reaction and not a not a uh, self destruction process. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing about the healthy microbiome is, is use the benefit of what your ancestors did that was healthy and, and uh, kind of go there first as your first option. Uh, the, the amazing thing on the immune microbiota interaction yeah. is that people at University of Vanderbilt and some groups in Germany have shown that contrary to what we used to think, which was that chromosomal gene incompatibilities determined species separations or whether you had different species in nature. That's not the only way that happens. And it turns out they have shown that if you throw a microbiome in that the immune system really hasn't seen, either hasn't seen for a long time or hasn't seen ever, it will react with a massive inflammatory response really? and kill the hybrid. And this has been done in four species, for example, parasitic wasps, and in subspecies of the house mouse living in Europe, kind of in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe, there's a, been a geographic separation. And what they found is that if you throw in a microbiome that the immune system is not really adjusted to, not fine-tuned to, that it'll react with massive inflammation and kill the hybrid or make it so that it can't reproduce. Hmm. Now, what's interesting is that's, that's just sort of, an, a, to me, an enhanced reaction to what we see with non-communicable diseases, right. where we have depleted microbiomes and eventually they're going to show up as, inf as incorrectly regulated inflammation in tissues that lead to pathology and disease. And here you have such a massive response against the microbes that it kills. Right. And you have sterility. You have the hybrid not existing. Larval stage of the wasp gets killed. Hmm. So that suggests that that's that bond between the immune system growing up with microbes in early life in the infant is almost sacred because that's going to determine 
who you are as a person and what you react to and how you approach your environment. And uh, so there are, uh, there are adjustments that I, I suspect are extremely useful in the microbes. And then there are adjustments where you actually ought to pay attention to what the immune system is going to, to want to cooperate with because uh, experience is telling us that uh, you can make a species or you can have organisms that are now within the same species just by changing the microbiome. Wow. That's pretty insightful. So we were talking about the locations of the microbiome, and we've focused a lot now, I feel, like we, we've been just talking about the gut. So let's talk about the other locations of the microbiome. So if I eat more fiber, is that going to help out the bacteria on my skin? Does the dietary and the, the things that we can do to influence the microbiome of the gut still hold true to the microbiome of like the other orifices of the body or even the dermal uh, microbiome? Yeah, I mean, there are systemic effects, so it will certainly exert some effect. But keep in mind the other thing, you, you have other environmental experiences that your skin goes through. Mm -hmm. And they may predominate. I mean, they, you know, diet will, will clearly affect skin microbiome, but uh, your use of, of sunblocks, your use of uh, various personal care products mm -hmm. on your skin uh, is going to uh, affect those directly. And again, keeping in mind my mantra that if it's not been proven safe for the microbiome as a drug or environmental chemical, you should assume it's not Got it. because it was never tested in a way that revealed status. Uh, so we now know, I mean, microbiome researchers can go through and they can tell you where you have been applying various skin products Really, by virtue of the pattern. They built 3D models of the skin microbiota and you have desert areas in your skin mm. and you have you know, your armpits are like tropical rainforest equivalents. <laughs> so you got microbes that are very different growing in different skin locations mm -hmm. on you and their metabolism affects more than skin health. So keep in mind your use of hand sanitizers, mm -hmm. that's going to affect your skin first, first and foremost. And again, various things that you would apply or encounter relative to your skin. So for example, there, there are, uh, I know a microbiome researcher, Larry Weiss, that's been involved, uh, and he and I were on a program together. He's been, been involved with a couple of different companies, and one of them has been able to retrieve a skin microbe that has been lost to much of uh, Western civilization, but is present in indigenous populations in the Amazonian rainforest. And this one metabolizes ammonia. Uh -huh. And it's a great thing. And we, yeah. we don't have it anymore in the U.S. It's not there. You, it's not a matter of boosting it. It's not there. Right. But they have been able to retrieve this. And it, I'm, not, uh, I'm not touting it uh, again, uh, but simply mentioning that that's, uh, that's a, a probiotic. It's for the skin. Right. Um, and I have no, no financial connection to that company that is mm -hmm. marketing it. Mm -hmm. But the intriguing thing is one of the side effects of that is reduced blood pressure. So metabolism of ammonia on your skin and this microbe and that pathway affects blood pressure. So we need to realize that the effects of the microbes go beyond the body site. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, could, I can give you some other biological reasons for that. Nasal receptors for some reason, sense of smell mm -hmm. also occur in your vascular system. And those receptors are regulating things like blood pressure. Right. So if you want to look at basis of things like aromatherapy, yeah. <laughs> it's not a reach. It's not a reach. Nobody knows why are they there? Why are they in the nose? Mm -hmm. And 
in the cardiovascular system. So this is just an example of a microbe we've already lost. We're 30, estimated to be 35 to 40% depleted in our microbiome diversity compared to uh, the Yamamami uh, in the Amazonian rainforest. So uh, retrieving a few of those and supporting them would be extremely beneficial. There's some metabolism we could use. Absolutely. Wild stuff. So you've talked a couple times about uh, soil, plant, and uh, human. So let's talk more about how the bacteria like picture is built up in general and why we're in such trouble now. Right. Well, I think the, the important thing, and it was sort of one of my messages at the Regenerative Agriculture Conference, is we can, we can do all kinds of wonderful things relative to human health if we are not equally supporting soil health, mic microbiome diversity, uh, plant diversity, what both wildlife and our food production animals are eating. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a lot of, there's some very interesting data on eating a diversity of, of meadow crops for foraging production animals and what that does to the phytochemical makeup, uh, a, a whole variety of things relative to meat quality and what comes through the production animals to humans. So if we essentially have a, uh, a rather, well, let, I can comment on glyphosate. Glyphosate mm -hmm. acts uh, by disrupting, among, other th among the things it does, it kills bacterial pathways. Mm -hmm. So it's antimicrobial. And you can imagine applying that to vast acreage of soil mm -hmm. is going to make that a microbial wasteland. Mm -hmm. uh, and that'll go right through to uh, in, through mm -hmm. a couple of different ways, direct exposure, the production animals and ingestion, mm -hmm. but also to the ramifications of having a crummy soil right. that we're going to try to operate on um, and that our children are playing in. So I think uh, my message to this group doing really innovative work on all the way through uh, the the ecosystem, you might say, uh, and, and concerning itself with healthy food for humans is uh, if they're not successful, we're not successful in human health. So it really is a matter of supporting microbial diversity and those friendly microbes through, you know, through the environment we're growing up in and experiencing it. And that lends itself to food production as well. So a lot of people are, they have a lot of despair, a lot, very dismal about their outlook of the quality of our soil and feel like it's never coming back. Do we have hope that we can get back to this, you know, bountiful resource of bacteria friendly uh, species all over the place, or are we pretty much toast now? No, I don't think we are toast. I was just, I was thrilled by seeing what, what these, these almost visionary ranchers and, and nutritionists are doing mm -hmm. in managing a way that, that really replenishes soil and allows it to, to remain healthy, even as they're producing uh, what's a re really high quality food products. Mm -hmm. And so I think it can be done. It's just a different, it's a different way of operating. It's like us as humans operating as if, uh, well, I used the term at, a, at the American Academy of Pediatrics in a, in a lecture last month, microbiome first medicine. You know, it's 99% right. of your genes. Why aren't we looking there first and not even as an afterthought? And, and in this case, it's a matter that they're really trying to manage the soil for microbial health and for microbial health of their, their animals. And they do so in incredibly innovative ways. So I think I'm, I'm simply making the case that to ignore the soil, to ignore how our production 
of food crops and animals is grown mm -hmm. and, and managed uh, would be a serious mistake because we're only going to re-damage our microbiome even as we're trying to restore it. Uh, the other point I'd make is we need to encourage people to experience that robustness of healthy animals, healthy soil. Mm -hmm. uh, so part of the problem is we've moved more and more people into megacities and we have so-called green spaces, but mm -hmm. my, microbiologists have shown that these cities are a microbial wasteland. They are contributing to the destruction of our microbiome. Well, I mean, Central Park is pretty gross. Yeah, <laughs> they, they are not the kind of interactions that are needed to support the microbiome. Mm -hmm. What people ought to be doing, quite frankly, is getting their, getting their kids out on animal farms. Mm, really? Early on, as often as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because again, this goes back to studies that we didn't even know how to interpret it at the time. But a couple of decades ago, they call it, I call it the German barnyard study. It was done a lot of places in Europe. And they asked the question, what is the, the health projections uh, if a pregnant woman, woman or young children, you know, newborns were reared on an animal farm versus a couple of miles down the road in an urban setting. Mm -hmm. And the answer is dramatically reduced incidence of allergic diseases and asthma dramatically, mm -hmm. unless the animal farm was using pesticides to grow their crops. Right. Then you lose the benefit. And that's been replicated over and over. And it led to what was called gen generically as the hygiene hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But people really didn't under, you know, and that is that you don't want to be too clean. You want to be among the microbes. Right. Uh, with, you know, uh, protecting against pathogens. Mm -hmm. Well, we now understand the reason is your immune system just doesn't, you have an immune system that's come out of the womb. Right. In a, in a state where the baby's developing immune system, the fetus could not react against the mother immunologically and where the mother couldn't reject the fetus or you have a miscarriage and they both have to be uh, skewed in their in their immune uh, immune status and mobs are you you see this even in their symptomology for things like lupus and allergies and other things you see you, you see the changes of the skewed immune, immune environment mm -hmm. and that's the case with the baby they do not develop uh, immunologically in a linear fashion and contrary to popular belief and what i used to teach at cornell when i was hired in the 70s they are not good to go at birth they have to have serious immune adjustments to avoid particular uh, specific diseases and to not mount inflammatory responses. So you have to have a distribution of immune cells in the tissues in the periphery that is driven by the microbiome. You have to have the immune system uh, conditioned by the gut microbiome, the airways microbiome, the skin microbiome. And by the same token, the immune system is also pruning, pruning the microbes too. There's sort of a co, there, there's a co-growing up together mm -hmm. event that happens in babies and infants. And for, we talk about the first thousand days as being sort of arbitrary, but a useful uh, window to pay attention to. And if that doesn't happen, there's a very predictable increase in prevalence of very specific diseases. We know what's going to happen to the cohort, not individuals, but to the cohort that misses that. So, you know, everything from the, the, the those early environmental experiences, elective cesarean uh, delivery separates mom from baby. Uh, the baby doesn't benefit from her installing those microbial genes as they would be installed with natural childbirth. Breastfeeding is critical. You get all the prebiotics in, in uh, human milk oligosaccharides that are only designed for the microbes. We can't digest them. 
Right. They're for there only for the microbes, and you get extra mi uh, microbes that change the profile of milk micro uh, microbiota shifts week to week, which is remarkable. Yeah. So mom's milk composition in in food for the microbes and in the microbes directly that she installs by nursing the baby, that shifts as the baby's aging because you have this co-maturation going on. And there are other immune components in colostrum and milk that the baby needs to get as well that come through the milk. So those those kind of events, plus the experiences of of not not being over sanitized, not being separated from healthy soil, separated from animals, mm -hmm. uh, is, is critical. And that's the kind of thing we should really be supporting in trying in preventative medicine, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, while you're talking about dirt, I was just thinking that one of the biggest trends right now in the supplement industry is to try to sell people soil-based bacteria, bacillus strains. And while, you know, I know that there's probably some data out there that says specific bacillus species probably could have some therapeutic effects in people. I kind of think it's just a gimmick and potentially dangerous because most probiotics are made poorly. Uh, have you heard about this trend of the soil-based bacteria? And what do you think about that? Uh, just on only in a peripheral way. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't think I have a very informed comment to make. I guess what's your opinion? Uh, you, you would be better to condition the soil around you and stick your hands in that mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. have a robust microbiome than right. probably trying to, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to read more on it. To, I, I can't say there's not a soil bacterium that could be beneficial. It could, but that's a kind of, um, I, I think there are better ways to get the benefits. Uh, you'd be better to visit one of these farms, ranches that's got all of the animal species mix moving meadow to meadow because you're going to get some really good soil there with terrific diversity of meadow plants. And that's the one you want your kid playing in. <laughs> I'll make sure to tell the internet doctors with this new quackery gimmick to tell people to stop buying their probiotic and just move to a farm instead. <laughs> yeah, it would be, it, the right farm would be better. The right farm would in be In my better. opinion. Just, so, just, just because this is one micro, maybe it does something, but why not benefit from thousands? Right. So when we're in a depleted state of our microbiome, what should people be aware of besides the stuff that normally people know that you can get opportunistic gut infections and that can be real problems, some C. diff and, and all of that fun super infection stuff that happens. What other things can happen in a depleted microbiome state? Well, you have both the increased risk of infectious diseases and uh, non-communicable diseases. So I, I'll, I'll give you an interesting question. People, readers of my book, The Human Superorganism, have asked me, and that is whether or not non-communicable diseases are completely non-communicable. So that's an interesting question. And, and where it comes from is uh, not genetically related uh, household partners in some cases, spouses or household partners that have lived together a long time, both showing up with the same non-communicable disease, so some type of inflammatory bowel, for example. They're eating the same food. They're in the same environment. But the interesting thing is if you're in a depleted microbiome state, you're, you will fill your body spaces with bacteria. Right. The question is, what kind of bacteria? So right. a, a, an elective cesarean delivered baby is going to fill it with hospital bacteria and or those of the in, attending physicians. Right. Um, 
a howler monkey who in Vietnam eats 57 different plant species and in the U.S. zoo eats one plant species, severely restricted diet, actually fills it with the animal handler's microbiome. It's humanized. It becomes a humanized howler monkey. Wow. Same thing happens in lab animals, actually in rodents, where there's a building microbiome and an animal technician microbiome. And they're interesting, unfortunate research experiences where people are working on the immune system and they move their, they move their rats and mice to a brand new building. You know, uh, I think University of Missouri, for example, had a brand new building. And I had people in my office asking, how come I couldn't repeat this experiment? Well, actually, investigators at University of Missouri have shown that there is a huge effect by your environment and who you're interacting with. So if you're in a depleted microbiome state, <laughs> you probably you probably want to spend quality time around healthy people. Right. Be careful the company you keep. If your spaces are going to get filled. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it just means that you're, you've left yourself wide. Again, uh, maybe the medications you're taking and the like have opened you up to whatever's around. Uh, uh, I mentioned the hotel room at the beginning of our talk. Yeah. And you will fill it with something. It may not diversify your microbiome, may not he help you health-wise. So those tell us that you, you will acquire microbes. And in fact, if you're living in the household for 40 years eating exactly the same thing, uh, you're probably sharing microbes with your house partner or spouse. So yeah, that can happen. Can that lead to the same disease? Theoretically, it's not impossible, mm -hmm. um, even though the, the, the genes otherwise are different because, again, it's 99% of your genes. So it, it's a very intriguing question. And it just means it goes back to my advocating we should manage our microbes. Don't let it be happenstance. Take charge of your body. Take charge of your environment. Wonderful. Anything that you want to cover that we haven't covered yet, sir? Uh, that's it's been great to be able to visit with you yeah. and it's, it's just safe to, safe to say that I'm actually encouraged I'm very encouraged particularly after again this last week where I I heard what's going on in terms of all of the rest of the things that I I am less focused on beyond the animal mm -hmm. I also know some about the animal microbiomes but but uh, the way that this management's occurring so so we really need to become human ecologists and and, and, and manage these microbes you know it's a part of us and we we could we have a chance to to control that. And uh, we don't have all the information we need, but we got enough to, to get a good start. So for right. example, I've encouraged physicians to really take the approach that uh, if you did, if you've treated a patient and you did not intend to kill something that you killed, you need to put it back. <laughs> and, uh, and that's again, addressing the fact that antibiotics are usually not single bacterium specific or single yeah. pathogen specific. And you, you really need a little more holistic approach because we know the, we know the literature on things like Clostridium difficile, mm -hmm. life-threatening hospital-associated infection, right. that you got to have antibiotics. I mean, there are things, antibiotics are lifesavers, but, but you're killing friendly bacteria and you're leaving yourself wide open uh, because you've reduced colonization resistance in your body and you're leaving yourself more vulnerable to future infections. Mm-hmm. And particularly reoccurrence of something like Crostidium difficile yeah. infection. So that's what happens in these patients if you do nothing different. Right. So we need to, you know, medically, we need to do things differently. And we need to ensure that we optimize colonization resistance. And if you've had a successful round of antibiotics that a physician directed, uh, you, need to, you need to reinstall some, 
some microbes that are going to afford you colonization resistance. Now, I, I should mention one really interesting study mm -hmm. because there's a question of how many microbes, how many bacteria do you need mm -hmm. to protect against a pathogen? And that was actually uh, some uh, rodent laboratory work addressed that very specifically. And it was interesting because to direct it, to direct the package of microbes they wanted to install in mice that deliberately had a depleted microbiome, or, or essentially the germ-free mice. They asked, what, what bacteria combinations do we want to install in the gut to protect against a human salmonella pathogen, mm -hmm. which is what they use for the exposure? Mm -hmm. And how many do we need? And they use metabolism, metabologenomics is what mm -hmm. it's called, but they use the metabolism profile to direct the environment they wanted to create in the gut that would protect maximally against salmonella. And the answer was they only needed 15 bacteria. Wow. So if you have over a thousand in your gut, now that's only one human pathogen, but it's an important one. Mm -hmm. The answer was you only needed 15 bacteria uh, to create the metabolic environment to get really good frontline resistance. Mm. You know, not perfect. You could go through stress and damage the microbiome, and then you, you're open to some infection. But why not use that frontline defense, which works so beautifully, uh, to, to first and foremost protect against infectious diseases? Um, mm. And so that, that's very encouraging. That really suggests it may, it's, not, it's not massive leaps necessarily to, to gain some health improvement and, preventative, and improve prevention. Wonderful. Dr. Dieter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a great intro conversation. I'm hoping that you come back. We talk about kids' immune systems and how to keep them healthy. So um, thank you again, and uh, we hope to have you on soon. Thank you so much, Neil. Look forward to the possibility of coming back. Thanks again to Dr. Rodney Dieter for spending some time with us. The biggest take-home from today, your microbiome is not just about your gut. It's multiple places on your body and inside, but it's everything outside of it too. Be careful the company you keep, of course. At least now you have a good excuse for why you don't want your family coming over for the holidays. Yeah, your normal flora actually upsets my microbiome, so you can't come over, right? So that's a good one. Dr. Dieter hit a key point. Holistic care is what will save your microbiome. All your healthy lifestyle choices together with well-made probiotics will best support your microbiome. We can't look to the poor quality supplement market as our alpha and omega. We have to do the work. We'll have Dr. Dieter back on to talk more microbiome, specifically kids and their immune health, because that's pretty relevant to most of us, especially me with a tribe of children. If you want more of Dr. Dieter, buy his books. Strategies for Protecting Your Child's Immune System, and more recently, The Human Superorganism, How the Microbiome is Revolutionizing the Pursuit of a Healthy Life. Visit RodneyDieter.com, R-O-D-N-E-Y-D-I-E-T-E-R-T.com, and see all of his great stuff and listen to his speeches and his visits to podcasts like ours. That's it for me. Join us soon and we'll have another conversation around good gut health practices and more microbiome discussions. Until then, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.